0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We are going through the Gospel of Luke. We're right in the middle of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. It's got 24 chapters in your English Bible. That brings us to the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus. We are actually now in the last six to nine months the gospels emphasize the ministry of jesus christ and they emphasize even more his last days of ministry leading to the cross and that's where we are jesus is now for the next six to nine months as far as we can tell in the gospel of luke from chapter eleven to twenty four jesus is now leaving his hometown from galilee and headed toward the cross jerusalem and going across the jordan back and forth zigzagging staying at different homes meeting different people fulfilling the will of the father every step of the way one last chance as he proclaims the mercy of his grace through the imminent kingdom that's represented in him as the king and also warning sinners to repent toward a holy God and with that comes those who resist that message the two-fold message the message of grace and mercy and forgiveness and also the message of warning about a holy God and there are different reactions to that and We'll see that in chapters 11 through 24. There's a growing resistance that the gospel writers give us about the leadership in Israel, particularly the leadership in Jerusalem and Judah, who are responsible for the death of Christ. And so Jesus is going to continue to butt heads, if you will, with the leadership in Israel at that time. And that's the context of our passage today. So today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 11. If you have your Bible, verses 37 to 54. We just came off of the beginning of chapter 11. The bulk of that chapter was public ministry. Jesus is ministering to large, massive crowds, in addition to his 12 apostles preparing and training them. His legitimate followers and then others who are just interested, curious Others are following him around who really aren't interested or curious at all. They hate him with a passion, and they have for three years now. And they continue to secretly hound him in the shadows, hiding in the crowds, seeking to undercut him, catch him in a fault. And who is that? That's the leadership of Israel. Those are the John calls them the Jews. John's gospel. But Matthew, Mark and Luke let us know who these Jews are. It's the Jewish leadership. They're the ones with all the authority, all the power. And that would be the Sanhedrin made up of Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and then you got some Herodians thrown in there. So that's the leadership. They're trying to undercut his ministry. So uh, beginning of chapter 11 is public ministry and then every once in a while Jesus will take a break and do some private ministry uh, a, a private conversation with an individual small group of apostles or maybe all 12 apostles and like in this case maybe a, a dinner or lunch that he's invited to attend and that's where we are here after public ministry and uh, he is invited to a meal a formal meal by a Pharisee of all things the religious leaders who have established themselves now, after three years we've seen Luke, they hate Jesus. So it's interesting that this late in His ministry, after all the encounters He's had with the Pharisees, all the name-calling that they have publicly proclaimed to Jesus' face, the Pharisees against Jesus up to this point, name-calling, false accusations, demeaning comments, uh, very significant ones that we saw early on in the book of Luke. They said things like, you're not a true prophet, you're not a true prophet, you're a blasphemer. They publicly said that and accused him as they pointed the finger. That warranted the death penalty according to the Mosaic Law. You're a blasphemer. You're a bastard child, John 8. They said that publicly. We just saw in chapter 11 earlier. They accused him of being of Beelzebub, or you're a demon. You're from Satan himself. We know you do miracles, but you do that by the power of Satan. So, this is how the exchange has been going. And after all that, and by the way, early on in his ministry, not even within the first two years of ministry, it says, the Gospels tell us that uh, the Pharisees, the Jews, the leaders were, were secretly trying to find ways to kill him. That's their motive. That's their agenda. That's their intent. Nevertheless, here in verse 37, it says that a Pharisee invited him to a meal. So, let's see how that goes. Verse 37. Now, when Jesus had spoken to the crowds and just finished, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and Jesus went in and reclined for the lunch, and When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised or he marveled that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. So, the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But you give that which is Within, but give that which is within as charity, and then all things will be clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay the tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees. For you love the chief seats and the synagogues and the respectful greetings and the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers or scribes said to Jesus in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to hear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed the prophets. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed the prophets. And you build the prophets' tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God has said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them will kill They will kill and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you lawyers for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter and you hindered those who were trying to enter. When Jesus left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question Jesus closely on many subjects, plotting against Him to catch Him in something He might say. That that is breathtaking. Just so you know, if you were not here last week, we laid the foundation for this, so we're just going to jump right into the text. So, gave the background... And it is breathtaking, again, particularly if you're not familiar with what the New Testament actually says about Jesus, you might find this scandalous, or even question it. But we established that clearly last week, that there were several times, this is not um, an exception to the ministry of Jesus Christ, this actually was typical of his ministry as it is revealed in Scripture. It's not a one-time occasion. Jesus' ministry, his public ministry in particular, was riddled with conflict with the leaders, the Jews, as we've already mentioned. And in addition to Luke 11, the Gospel writers go into great detail on a few other significant occasions where Jesus renounced publicly and denounced and condemned the Jewish leadership, Pharisees and scribes. Uh, We saw last week, we read through Matthew 23, that's a parallel passage, although it's not the same incident. This incident here, like I said, is about six to nine months before Jesus' ministry is over, this public denunciation of the leadership. Matthew 23 actually happens the last week of Jesus' life on a Tuesday of Holy Week. And there were other occasions as well. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. How did Jesus begin His ministry, His public ministry? He comes out of obscurity. Nobody knew about Him. He never taught. He never did miracles. He was unbeknownst, for the most part, to the crowds, the masses, even the Jewish leadership. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, He starts doing public ministry. And He starts out with a miracle that no one could replicated. It was unprecedented. He turned water into wine at a wedding. That's how He began the ministry John 2. What's the very next thing Jesus did to begin His ministry? He goes into the temple in Jerusalem at the high season of the festivals when pilgrims from all over literally the then known world were gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate a Jewish feast. And so in the courtyard near the temple and all the surrounding precincts and areas. There were just crowds and crowds of people cramped together literally. And down by the temple and in Solomon's porch literally you could amass thousands upon thousands of people there. And that's what it looked like as they're making sacrifices, it's the feast day, it's the high point and holiest time of the year for the Jews. And that's where Jesus began His public ministry. And how did He do it? He did it by going into the temple and cleansing the temple. That's John chapter 2. That's how He began the ministry. That came with public rebuke and denunciation at the top of his lungs, in public, of the Jewish leadership that was running the temple and overseeing the sacrifices. And John 2 tells us, he made a cord, he made a whip, he made a whip, to do what with? To whip with. And he cleansed the temple because they were defiling his father's house, God the Father, with a whip. And it doesn't say that Jesus just said, oh, hey guys... Hey, everybody, can I have your attention? Can you, can you guys leave and stop doing this? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that he asked them to leave. John uses a very specific word. He drove them out of the temple. Same verb used when Jesus drove demons out of people. Same word. Cast. It's forceful. It is aggressive. It's physical. Coercing that. That's what Jesus, our blessed Savior, with a rope a whip. It says he's forcing them out of the temple area. He's yelling at the top of his lungs. And literally it says he begins to cast over tables and their chairs and their money onto the ground, just everywhere. And we think, oh, you know, just a couple of tables got turned over. No. There's an entire thoroughfare of a bazaar of probably dozens after dozens of tables that were set up because there were so many people. And so who knows how long he's doing this, one table at a time, just flipping it over. And you, you know, you can see some of the, t- the table guys making their money and they got their table set up and they look down the corridor about a hundred yards and, wow, what is that guy doing? He's flipping tables. He's yelling. He's very angry. Wow, he's got a whip. He's chasing. Oh, wow, he's coming this way. <laughs> That's what it looked like. Well immediately John 2 tells us, this is significant. Immediately when Jesus was done, it says the Jews spoke up. What's the, who are the Jews? It's the leadership of Israel. Who's that? The Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Pharisees. And they immediately question Jesus. Basically, who do you think you are? What authority do you have to do this? Show us a sign. Show us a miracle. Prove it. So if I were to ask you, what was the reason that Jesus got executed and died? What was the legal reason that he was found guilty that supposedly warranted capital punishment? There had to be a specific legal issue to implement the death penalty. According to the Mosaic Law and the Sadducees, Scribes, and Pharisees, they had to do, the Sanhedrin, they, had, they, they were legalists. They had to do, uh, do business by the law. They couldn't just kill somebody spontaneously, even though at times they did. But Jesus was too popular, too well-known. So they knew, okay, we gotta, if we're going to pin this guy, we've got to pin him legally. We've got to have a legal case. It's got to be condoned by the Mosaic Law. And it's got to be done uh, through due process, at least their fictitious version of due process. Namely, all they needed we need a testimony of two or three witnesses. And if I were to ask you, was there a legal issue that was sworn testimony by the testimony of two or three witnesses before the Sanhedrin that accused Jesus of a falsehood, breaking the Mosaic Covenant, that warranted the death penalty? The answer is yes, and you can read it in Matthew 26. And you know what it was? It says they were having witnesses come through, like, uh, in the front door and out the back door because they couldn't find legitimate witnesses. They kept contradicting each other. And finally, they got two guys who could agree. And you know what it was? Their testimony went three and a half years back. And they testified that, yes, this Jesus claimed that he could destroy God's temple and build it again in three days. And so the leadership, okay, there's two guys that said the same thing without contradiction. That is blasphemy. He deserves the death penalty. And that's that's what happened. So that is why Jesus died. That's why he was crucified. That's Matthew 26. The very first public display of Jesus' ministry cleansing the temple was the reason he got crucified legally from the Jewish leadership's perspective. They called it blasphemy. Anyway, I wanted to give you a little more background to show you that uh, all of that plays into what you see here today. Jesus is not rebuking the Pharisees at a, a lunch out of context with no warrant, with no precedent whatsoever. There's a long history here. And so we we see it here. So now, if you just go to your outline, I just want to pull away from this. The sermon today is called Jesus Hates Religious Legalism. Today it's part two. Last week was part one. And so we want to go through this passage, uh, highlight what Jesus is talking about, how he exposes religious legalism, and then practically for us, these principles transcend time. And we can actually take these principles regarding how much God and Jesus hate legalism because we said one of the things that God and Jesus hate the most in the world, in the universe, is religious legalism, and especially uh, religious legalism that tries us to use scripture to validate it. That's what made Jesus and God so angry. So we can learn uh, about how to deal with legalism, how to spot it, discern it, uh, ward against it, because legalism has been around with us for 2000 years in the church, it always will be. Jesus said publicly time and time again to His disciples, or His followers, those who love Him. So, He would say the same thing to us today if Jesus were here. He would say, beware, beware. watch. Hey, Christians, watch out for what? For the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. What's the leaven? The poison of the scribes and the Pharisees. What's the poison of the scribes and the Pharisees? It's very specific. It wasn't really uh, off the wall, crazy, heretical, false teaching. It was legalism. It was hypocritical, shallow, religious legalism. That was what we were to be warned of. Watch out, believers, for the leaven. Leaven is something that's uh, nuanced. It's hard to identify sometimes. It's good at masquerading, and it infiltrates even where believers truly are. And so Christians have a problem with religious legalism. Every church has to struggle with it, deal with it. And like I said last week, we have it here at Creekside Bible Church in various forms. We might not even be aware of it, so we've got to guard against it. Religious legalism, the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. So we can practically apply these principles to us. So let's go ahead and look and see what these principles are from Jesus' teaching as we look at verses 37 through 53 as we walk through the text. And we'll just follow the outline here. And point number one regarding legalism and how we can understand it is legalists, legalists, religious legalists, have the wrong view of Jesus. That's where it all starts. But that's true of every wrong worldview, right? Every wrong political ideology, every wrong uh, false religion, every wrong philosophy. Bottom line is they have a wrong, twisted, perverted, whatever it is, view of who Jesus is. So you got to start there. That's the baseline. And that's the problem with the legalist. Whether it's an unsaved religious legalist who's trying to get saved and earn God's favor through religious legalism, or a Christian legalist. What's that? That is a legitimate, bona fide, born-again, Bible-believing Christian. That's a true child of God who tends towards legalism. Then there are plenty of Christians who have that problem. We're all vulnerable to that. So you can be a Christian legalist, and one of your problems, and one of my problems in whatever areas I might struggle with that is, boy, i got to double-check my view of Jesus to have the right Christology. That was their problem. So, legalists have the wrong view of Jesus. What is it? Verses 37 and 38 tell us what it is. Now, when Jesus had spoken to the crowds, a Pharisee asked Jesus to have a meal or lunch with him. So, Jesus agreed. He went to this lunch. This lunch wasn't just this Pharisee. The Pharisee had his friends there, probably several Pharisees, and and he apparently had several scribes there as well. So, this is a large gathering probably in this guy's very nice private home. They're laying down. They're about to have a meal. Um, the Pharisees, before the meal is served, they're doing all kinds of mystical, religious, superstitious, hocus-pocus with with water uh, pitchers. And they're, they're they're holding their hands up like this, and they're saying private prayers, and they're turning to the left and the right, and their partner is pouring the pitcher of the holy water on their hands, and then they're letting it drip down, and then they hold it, and then they get it washed like this, back and forth, and they're doing all this stuff right here, and Jesus is just watching. He does none of it doesn't participate in this charade that had been established at this time. Then they're all done, and they feel all holy, and they're ready to eat, and they notice that Jesus didn't do that. He didn't do the religious hokey-pokey with them. So they are... And that's why it says, so the Pharisee asked Jesus, verse 38, and when the Pharisees saw it, that Jesus didn't do this, washing... He was surprised, he was shocked, he was marveled, he was amazed, he was alarmed, he was disgusted. That's what that word means. I can't believe it, is what this guy's thinking. He was surprised. He didn't say this, though. The text doesn't say it. He's thinking this. He was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. Ceremonially, that's baptizo. It just, he didn't wash with water. This was a tradition of the elders. Mark 7 uh, explains what the Pharisees did by this, all this water washing that they made up. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Old Testament. Moses didn't require it. Somebody made it up, made it religious, sanctioned it. It became oral practice, the oral law. It wasn't written down yet. It would be written down in 200 A.D. through the Mishnah, but not yet. But the rabbis passed this tradition on. You want to be holy. You want to be set apart. You want to obey God and earn his favor and love Yahweh, uh, appease him. Part of what you got to do is you got to do this water ritual. It's not in the Bible. It's made up. That's what's going on here. It was the tradition of the elders, Mark 7 calls it. And Jesus wanted nothing to do with the tradition of the elders, of the rabbis who came before, a bunch of dead guys that made up stuff about religion, not the Bible. So Jesus came to expose and condemn. That's what he's exposing here. So this Pharisee is aghast that Jesus isn't doing this um, and that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. So this guy just has a wrong view of Jesus. He expects Jesus to be, like everybody else, a legalist, a religionist, putting emphasis on the externals. He doesn't realize that Jesus is God in the flesh, one with Yahweh God of the Old Testament. His Christology is completely deficient, bankrupt. We know that because look at verse 53 and 54 of how this lunch ends. Jesus gives us rebuke. Imagine, Almighty God, creator of the universe, judge of every soul, in the flesh, is at your dinner table, He rebukes you, warns you, and what's your response? Do you embrace it, take it in, bow the knee, ask for forgiveness from Almighty God, incarnate Jesus? Well, they don't. They harden their hearts, stiffen their necks, put a fist in the face of God, and here's what they conclude in verse 53. When Jesus had left there from lunch, the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus just rebuked began to be very hostile and to question Him closely on many subjects. So they didn't come to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They had the wrong view of Jesus. He was just a man. He was a phony. He was an imposter. He was, as a matter of fact, he was of the devil. And when you start accusing Jesus of being of the devil, that's the highest level of error you could possibly make. And with it comes the highest level of, of accountability from God. And Jesus makes that known in this passage. They were, so, what were they doing? They were plotting against him. You could literally say they began and continued plotting against him because they would already been doing that for the next six to nine months to catch him in something he might say. And they will. And they will kill him. That's what that means. So, step number one in avoiding being a legalist, review your Christology. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Number two, what else is wrong with legalists? Well, legalists have the wrong priorities, verses 39 to 41. So, the Lord said to him, even though this guy, he didn't articulate and voice this, he's responding to the guy's thoughts. So, what a shocker. He's actually responding to a thought that a guy had that he didn't articulate, and everybody else in the circle has no idea where this comment's coming from. From Jesus, they have no context, except this guy. So Jesus said to them, now you Pharisees, plural, that's everybody laying down at this lunch. Clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside of you. And what's he talking about? He's talking about their practice. Not only did they do hand washing, they also, all of their pots and everything they used at a meal was thoroughly cleansed. Not for hygiene sake, but for religious ceremonial Purposes. And they weren't just cleaning the inside. You know, we're particular about the inside. You know, when you drink from your cup, you don't want anything gross in there or out of your dish. That's not what they were concerned about. They're even cleaning the outside. What are they cleaning it of? Uh, to make sure that no Gentile contaminated it by breathing on it, touching it, or get this being near it. That's what they were trying to cleanse. So the emphasis was on the, the externals, the outside. How ironic. They're focusing on the wrong thing. They've got the wrong priorities. Um, You're focusing on the outside of something external. But inside of you, on the inside, the thing that God is most concerned about is the inside. The inside, the heart, the inner man, the inner woman. That's the priority for God. Not externals. Not the outside. Not the surface. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart, tells us the book of Samuel. God searches the hearts. Remember Deuteronomy 6, that very important passage, one of the most important verses in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, the the statement of faith of true Jewish religion that our God, He is one. And then verse 5 is that great commandment of love, love the Lord your God. And Jesus said, with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. He does say strength, but the first three that Jesus uses, those are all the inner man. That's the priority. That's a true believer. We love God from the heart. It's the inside that matters. That is the priority. And that was the exact opposite of these Pharisees and religious phonies. It was all about externals, not what was on the inside. They're trying to hide what's going on on the inside. What was going on on the inside? Jesus tells us robbery. That's a, a word that means plundering, pillaging, uh, deliberately destroying people's lives, deliberately using people with your false religion. To get what you want, that's why it's translated as robbery. This is spiritual robbery. This is a metaphor. That's what false teachers do, right? I'm going to use religion. I'm going to use the name of Jesus. I'm going to use the Bible. I'm going to use preaching. I'm going to use holy words to manipulate religiously sensitive people and even Christians so that the false teacher can get what he wants from them. So they were filled with robbery, plundering, taking advantage of sincerely vulnerable religious people, also they're filled with wickedness, that's the word for evil, depravity. You you are just filled with evil. You're concentrating on the outside of the dishes, and yet the most important thing that God cares about is the heart, the inner man. You've got the wrong priorities. So that's the key to being a legalist is you, your priorities are misplaced. You focus on the externals and the outside Instead of what God makes a priority. Oh, by the way, in Deuteronomy 6, it goes, uh, the great commandment, verse 5. And then in verse 6, again, God reiterates, he wants true religion from the heart. From the heart. And in the Old Testament, the word for heart means the inner man. It's not the organ that beats. It's the complete, entire, holistic of what makes you, you on the inside. It includes everything. Your conscience, your motives, your thought life, uh, your emotions, your will. That's heart in the Old Testament. It's all-inclusive. And that's the priority that they had turned on its head. But rather, this is how you should live, verse 41. But you, you should give that which is within his charity. You should be giving to the poor out of uh, love a heart of love is what you should be doing but you're not doing that so that's what he's telling them they should be doing verse 41 and if you did that and concentrated on the inside and thought about others and were other oriented out of a heart full of love for God then all these things then everything would be clean for you but it's not so legalists have the wrong priorities number three legalists compartmentalize life compartmentalize life That's verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. Does the Old Testament command believers to tithe? Tithe means tenth, to give a tenth of certain things. Yeah, it does. But it's very specific uh, generally. And it never says you have to tithe all your mints this was overly scrupulous this was fabricated, this was made up the Bible didn't require this, Moses didn't require this this was a show this is a kabuki theater performance, that's what this is imagine going home to your kitchen and then you pull out the dill weed container and just spread a bunch of those on the counter and then you start counting you'd have to get like a, something really small <laughs> start counting one, to, dill weed it's really small well that's what Jesus is talking about but that's what they did they're tithing these little herbs. I can just imagine. they're putting, okay, I've, okay, there's 10. And then they're taking it to the Levitical priest. Here, here you go with, with the bells and the show to impress people. This is really what's happening. Jesus is exposing this utter hypocrisy. For you pay the tithes of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, which Moses didn't require. And at the same time, you regard what God and Moses did require. And that is justice. That's towards your fellow man. Justice. Towards fellow man That's what God required in the Old Testament Mosaic Law. And love of God. Love towards God. So true virtue, true religion that comes from the heart. Justice towards men. The love of God towards God. And the love of God towards men. That is not what they focused on. They were completely absent of the love of God because they didn't know Yahweh personally. They hadn't been transformed. Uh, but these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. So yes, you should have tithed, but you should have done it according to the Mosaic Covenant, which is very clear what you should tithe, and it's not your mint leaves. You should have tithed what God told you to tithe. And even more importantly, you should have been committed to justice towards your fellow man and a true love of God. You've completely abandoned that. They love the wrong things. But the, the whole idea is they're, they're doing religion here, and they're compartmentalizing their life. They're being religious over here. And secular over here. That's a dualistic view of life. That's what legalists do. I'm religious on Sundays when everybody's watching from 9 to 12. And then in my private life and personal life, I'm doing secular stuff. That's what legalists do. Hypocrites. Compartmentalize life. They create false dichotomies in life. They create false dichotomies regarding teaching. They create false dichotomies against what God requires. That means pitting two truths against each other that shouldn't be pitted against each other. And that's how they lived life. So they were false dualists, uh, separating religious from the practical life. Romans twelve says, "Hey Christian, if you're truly a Christian, your entire life is a pleasing sacrifice to God, and you worship Him wherever you go, whatever you're doing. Doesn't matter. That's true religion. That's not what they did. So they compartmentalized life illegitimately. Number four. I actually, I just want to give an illustration real quick. Um, we still have compartmentalizing." Religious life going on and creating false religion in many different ways in the church. So we have to guard against that. And I believe Christians and leaders of churches, we need to examine everything we do that we call religion, that's a part of our worship service or our ministries or our missions or our programs, and vet it through the Bible. And is this a mandate of God? And are we doing it the right way? Or is this a man made thing that we're doing that is not in the Bible? And as a matter of fact, It smothers what the Bible wants us to do. We have to constantly be on guard against that, every single one of us. Otherwise, we could fall prey to false religion, which we already said God hates. And here's one that might surprise you that I think we need to guard against. I mean, you know, we have the the typical example of this would be the Roman Catholic Church and what it has become over the centuries. The emphasis is all on the external The garb, the hats, the pomp, the circumstance, uh, the marching with the large banners down before the mass, through the aisles, the vestments, the robes, the candles, the incense, the altars, the statues, the icons, the stained glass. None of that is in the Bible. None of that is in true worship in the book of Acts, which has nothing but just beautiful simplicity. And the model is there in Acts chapter 2 of what constitutes true religion in the Church of God. And it starts with the pure teaching of the apostles' teaching, that's the Bible, fellowship, prayer, breaking of bread, and worship together singing to our God. That's in Acts chapter 2. That, that's it. That's all, those are the ingredients you need with a plurality of God-ordained leadership. That's true religion. Then over the years, unfortunately, man has added to that. And then you come up with all all these false religions and false churches. But the Protestant church has not uh, been free of these invasions of man-made religions and doctrines all over the place. One of them is infant baptism. If you think about it, somebody said, so Pastor Cliff, is uh, infant baptism, is that a big deal? I say, yeah, it's a really big deal. Really? It's not just a peripheral secondary issue? No, not at all. It's major because of its significance. Well, what's wrong with it? Well, at least seven things are wrong with infant baptism. Really? Yes. What are they? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Number one, it was a false man-made pagan doctrine that was inherited or that the Roman Catholic Church co-opted from the world and invented and tried to Christianize it. And the Protestant Church inherited that from Roman Catholic theology. Why would we do that? So number one, it comes from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, number two, it's not in the Bible. It's man-made. It's a man-made tradition. second thing wrong with infant baptism. Then in terms of the theology of it, of true baptism in the Bible, five. you can make five comparisons side by side of true baptism and man-made baptism that, that fits this mold of false religion that God doesn't like. What about true baptism? Well, uh, number one, it's clear in the Bible that baptism has to do with dunking somebody in water. Infant baptism is about just sprinkling, not dunking. Completely reversed. Number two, uh, biblical baptism has the dunking of non-babies. These are grown-ups. Infant baptism has you sprinkling a little infant, maybe eight days old. Completely unbiblical. Number three, biblical baptism is dunking someone who's older, who can actually believe. They can understand. They hear the gospel. They comprehend it. They embrace it. And they exercise faith. An eight-day-old baby cannot do that. Sprinkle baby who has no cognizance of what's going on. Biblical baptism, dunked of a grown-up who's heard the gospel, understood it, exercised faith, which we need to do, That's who who gets baptized according to the Bible. Number four, biblical baptism is is dunking non-babies who understand the gospel, who exercised faith and got saved. That's who we're baptizing, saved people. What's infant baptism? It's sprinkling a non-adult, eight days old, who can't understand the gospel, let alone believe in the gospel, and therefore is not regenerate. And that's supposedly who they're baptizing. When the Bible is clear, you baptize only saved people. And then finally, number five. It's what is the purpose of baptism? Well, the Bible says we dunk non-babies who understand the gospel, who believe and embrace the gospel, and as a result, God saves them because of their belief. And the entire act of baptism is just a symbol. It's a symbol of something that has already transpired. That is, God has regenerated that person. It's a public declaration sign and symbol of what has already happened. It's a symbol. In other words, it is not efficacious. It doesn't bring about salvation. It does not bring about any sanctification. It does not earn the favor of God. It does not forgive any sins. It is not a means of grace. It doesn't adopt that little child into the collective family of God in the covenant. Absolutely not. The Bible doesn't teach that. That is man-made. And yet, infant baptism is all about the opposite. It's sprinkling a non-adult before they can even understand the gospel, before they can even believe, and they're not even saved And the symbolism is there is an efficacious means going on and God in His grace is infusing His grace somehow, mystically, spiritually, invisibly, bringing them literally into the family of God, apart from believing the gospel. So that's damning because this is not all about some peripheral doctrine. This is about the doctrine of salvation and the meaning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why I think it is a big deal. Now, you can think through the implications of that because I don't have time to talk about it if you want to ask me later, but that's fine. But just, I wanted to highlight the importance of examining everything that we do to make sure we are being biblical and, and doing things that please God that are truly established in His Word. Number four, legalists have self serving goals. Verse 43. What do you, Pharisees? Jesus said, for you love. The chief seats, it's interesting, the verse before he told us what they should have loved that they didn't. They didn't have the love of God. They didn't love people. They didn't love justice. They didn't love Moses' word as it was truly stated. Yet they do love something. They love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. This is just simply they have self-serving goals. They love the wrong thing. They love status. They love self-promotion. They love the praise of men. They love rewards in this life, not in the next life immediate gratification that's false religion but as Christians we're vulnerable to that so we need to examine our, am I doing this because I want the praise of men I want to be showy I want to be a whatever it is up here on stage so I can be seen and, and, and get adulations from the people we have to guard against that so we can fall prey to this self-serving goals number five legalists are spiritually defiled spiritually speaking uh, that's verse forty-four. Uh, Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, hidden tombs, hidden graves. So all over Jerusalem and other places in Palestine, they buried people in caves and also occasionally in the ground. And according to the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, a dead don't touch a dead body because it is unclean, ceremonially unclean. If you touch a dead body, then you have to isolate yourself for seven days or so, so that you can be clean again, ceremonially, spiritually, before God. So the Jews didn't want to be stepping on dead bodies or dead graves because then they thought, then we are ceremonially unclean. So the practice in Jerusalem and other places was when people were coming to town, feast days or whatever, the leadership and other Jews would whitewash all the tombs all over town. It's like putting a big orange cone in front of a hole in the ground. Warning, don't step here. And Jesus is saying, you know what, you're like concealed tombs. Somebody forgot to whitewash you. Nobody's giving a warning. People aren't aware. You are dangerous and people are touching you. And they are getting defiled as a result. Spiritually defiled by the false teaching and false practice of the Pharisees who were toxic. That's what this means. Toxic. They were defiled. Toxic. They were a horrible influence. They were highly infectious in terms of uh, how easily their wrong attitudes spread we see that in the church, right? When you, And a lot of times we're unsuspecting and we're talking to somebody and we think they're a well-meaning Christian and then they start saying stuff, usually gossip that they heard at the latest prayer meeting or whatever. And they couch it in spiritual terms. And before you know it, we are listening and imbibing in outright legalistic hatred that's spewing out of some other so-called christian's mouth and we're actually getting effect- infected by it and we don't even realize it subtly you know it's like an iv little by little and then all of a sudden it's affecting your attitude it's affecting your thought life you're like oh okay yeah wow i used to like that person at my church that sat in the third row yeah i better think twice thank, mm, thank you for telling me yes that's how it happens it's poison that's what these guys were like the, the end result is always the same it's negative the fruit is negative You look down your nose at people, critical, hypercritical, that's when you know you've been poisoned, very subtle, very dangerous, highly infectious, more infectious than, get this, COVID-19. A mask won't work. Don't be like them. Uh, Number six, legalists live by double standards. Double standards, that's verse 45 and 46. One of the lawyers said to Jesus in reply, so they're all sitting around. You know, I just wonder how lunch is going. I mean, have they even taken a bite? Maybe the, the guy put it on hold and said, wait, time out. Now, don't bring the food out yet, uh, the salad, because Jesus hasn't washed his hands here. We, we have no idea how far into lunch this has gotten. It's kind of interesting that, uh, that Jesus was allowed to say all that he did from verses 37 to 44 without anybody interrupting or saying anything. Because the meal is filled filled with Pharisees sitting there and already he said three woes. He's called them names. He said they're fools, they're evil, they're wicked. And they haven't said a peep. As a matter of fact, so the Pharisees don't even speak up. It's a scribe that mustered up the courage. The host hasn't said anything. So this scribe or lawyer, he probably just couldn't handle it anymore. So, he had to speak up. So, he did. Maybe he was a leader. Who knows? 45 and 46. So, the lawyer, the scribe speaks up, says to Jesus in reply, teacher, when you say this or these things, you insult us too. That's the scribes uh, or the lawyers because they worked in conjunction with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were like uh, lay people who were religious leaders. The scribes were like the professional religious leaders, masters of the Mosaic law. Not only the Mosaic Law, but also these man-made laws, and they kept record and memory of all the oral traditions passed on by the rabbis, and you got to remember the gazillion rules. I mean, God gave 613 laws in the Mosaic Covenant. You would think that was enough, but no, we need a thousand more. And so they, they were in charge, responsible for keeping all these man-made laws and even making up some of their own, and then informing the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were always informed and knew what the latest law was that they had to abide by and foist onto the people. <laughs> so they work together they travel together that's why Jesus said beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees they go together remember last week I said they travel like a pack of hyenas little clique long before street gangs there were the scribes and the Pharisees They're little huddles and factions that's how they travel so that's what the lawyer says and then Jesus Jesus doesn't back down he uh, turns his guns on them too woe to you lawyers as well Woe to you. Condemned are you. Condemned are you. For you weigh men down. You weigh people down. You weigh, basically what he's talking about, you weigh the normal people down here in Israel who uh, have Old Testament scripture, claim to love Yahweh, go to the synagogue, go to the temple. They, they want to please Yahweh. They want to know him. Uh, many of them are sincere. They want true religion. That's what they're desiring for. And you're messing everything up. You're hindering them in the process. You're not helping these people. You're supposed to be helping these people. You weigh them down. You burden them. You weigh them down with false religion, false expectations, man-made requirements. That's false religion. You know what that does? It is not liberating or free. You know what? It, makes, it gives you a guilty conscience is what it does because you're always like, oh, I can't do enough. I can't do enough. I can't do enough. That's why if you're a Roman Catholic and believe all that stuff, you always have guilt weighing you down. That's what false religion does. You never have assurance. You never have the awareness of true salvation, eternal forgiveness of sins, and eternal life in this life with assurance. You don't have that in false religion. That's what they were doing. So they're weighing them down with all these man-made regulations. For you weigh people down with the burdens. Remember, that's what the beautiful comment where Jesus said in contrast, my burden is light. Truth is light. Truth is liberating. Hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, true religion, will set you free from false religion. Nothing like it. For you, weigh men down with your burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So you say, do this, but they don't do it. That's hypocrisy. That is a double standard. That is false religion. That is quintessential legalism. And that's what they did. Hypocrites. That's why he called them hypocrites. Double standards. Number seven. Legalists hate those who love the truth. 47 to 51. That's the the issue. It's the heart. Jesus exposes the heart. What's at the heart of a true legalist who doesn't know God, who's not born again? is hatred. What's at the heart of a Christian who's really a Christian who's a legalist? Well, there's an element of hatred there. They need to expunge that, repent of it, confess it. Uh, John's gospel epistle is very clear. 1 John uh, is clear that if you're a Christian, you're going to love God's people. You're going to love fellow believers. You're not going to be judging all the time and critiquing fellow Christians. You'll love other Christians, regardless of where they are on the spectrum. Our hearts are knit together by the Spirit of God that lives in us and the one Savior that we have, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the one Father that we are children of. That's what knits our hearts together. Well, they didn't have this love of God. Woe to you for you, verse 47, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. What was this? Well, the Pharisees, apparently, and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, they built tombs or dressed up tombs in the land of Israel of prophets who had died previously, Old Testament prophets who had either died or been killed or murdered. Like if you go to uh, the book of Jeremiah chapter 2 and I think chapter 26, you learn of some of the prophets who got murdered. Prophets. God sends a prophet and he gets murdered. Guess who he gets murdered by? The Jews, and not just the Jews, the leaders of the Jews in the Old Testament. So it was the leaders of the Jews in the Old Testament that were murdering, time and time again, God's prophets. And who are these guys Jesus is talking to? They are the leaders of the Jews. You are doing the same thing the leaders of the Jews did in the Old Testament, and you don't condemn that behavior. And ironically, here you're dressing up the tombs and the graves of the prophets who got murdered by your ancestors, your fathers. That's what he's saying here. So, verse 48, you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, the Jewish leadership in the Old Testament, who killed the prophets, because it was they who killed the prophets. And yet you build the tombs of the prophets like you love the prophets, but you don't. You you hate the prophets of God. They hated the prophets of God. They hated all prophets of God. You hate all prophets of God and messengers of God. And the, the biggest example of this is who did they hate the most? They hated Jesus. Who was he? He was the greatest prophet there ever was. Jesus is the great prophet of the Old Testament. He is a prophet. He is the prophet. And they're they're trying to to figure out ways to kill him. That's what Jesus is talking about. You you kill the prophets and you're going to kill me, the greatest prophet of all. That's his point. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers. Verse 49, for this reason also the wisdom of God says this, I will send to them, these current day Pharisees, I'm going to send to them prophets and apostles. Those are Jesus' Messengers, I will send them. And so, so this is a prophecy. This is a prediction. And some of them, some of the apostles, they will kill. As a matter of fact, they killed 11 out of 12. John ended up in prison as an old man on the island of Patmos. Uh, you're going to kill some of the apostles. And some of them you will kill. Some of them you will persecute. Paul got persecuted and murdered. So that the blood of all the prophets, the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Why? Because they have the highest accountability. You have the entire Old Testament scriptures, and you have the Son of God before you in your presence in this meal. And he is speaking to you. And all those prophets represented him. That's why they are guilty and accountable. Verse 51 from the blood of Abel, Genesis chapter 4, to the blood of Zechariah and 2 Chronicles 24 who was killed between the altar and the house of God in the temple, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Blood is on your hands. Hatred. Number 8, verse 52. So he concludes with this. Woe to you, lawyers. So three woes for the warriors, three woes for the Pharisees, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. That's damning. What's the knowledge? This is the truth of God. How to know God, how to know Yahweh, how to please Him. The scriptures, the true teaching of the scriptures. They have smothered it, distorted it, replaced it with human religion. And as a result, they aren't going to enter the kingdom of God. They aren't going to be saved. And they're also prohibiting others from entering into the kingdom of God and knowing God. Truly, that's what he's talking about. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter the kingdom of God, Matthew 23 tells us. And you hindered others who were trying to enter the kingdom of God of God this is damning and that's why Jesus gives it such a scathing rebuke Uh, and he reserves his greatest wrath for those religious imposters and false religious leaders who lead people astray away from the glorious gospel to false religion and utter eternal damnation and then we conclude with verse 53 when he left there the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question jesus closely from that day forward on many different subjects with one goal in mind plotting against him to catch him in something he might say and then we'll continue in the gospel of luke as this hostility reaches its crescendo fulfilling their agenda because they hated jesus but at the same time in god's amazing plan fulfilling his ultimate goal of sacrificing his son on behalf of sinners like you and like me for forgiveness of sin, eternal life, the adoption into God's family as Jesus absorbed the wrath of the Holy Father on all of us who believe. I'm just going to close with three things regarding the sermon, just maybe some takeaways for us. This, these Sadducees and Pharisees probably were not saved. Maybe some of them got saved later after the church was planted. We know that some of the elders did. But for us who are Christians, true Christians, let's guard against Christian legalism. Starting, how should we start? Not by looking at everybody else, right? That would be a fairest, that's a legalist, don't do that. It's, okay, I'm going to look at myself in the mirror, and I'm just going to summarize three things uh, that typify their behavior. As the legalist, marks of a legalist, number one, they were cliquish, those little factions. Their world is very small. We got the corner on the truth. This is in Christianity. It's rampant all over the place. Our church is the best church. Our church is better than your church. My pastor is better than your church. My elders are better than your church. We know more than you. I hear, hear and see that all the time. That's cliquish. That's pharisaical. That's legalistic. Unacceptable. So cliquish. Number two, uh, marks of a legalist. Critical spirit. This is seen in the speech. Critical spirit. Um highlighting the weaknesses and the foibles of other people verbally which is easy to do because which of us have weaknesses let's all raise our hand I do, we all do that is so easy so it's a critical spirit and it's seen in your speech gossip, judging, it's always subtle, it's couched in religious language it's using the Bible with chapter and verse, Oh, that's impressive so Cliquish social behavior, critical verbal behavior, and then the last one, a negative attitude. That's all. Just a generally negative attitude. Uh, Legalists, they're downers. They never seem to have any joy. They're always in a bad mood. They're always negative because they're always pointing out everybody else's faults. They're not building up. They're not edifying. This is an attitude problem. Flows from the heart. They're not peacemakers, they're troublemakers. So let's avoid that and let's ask God for his help to not be cliquish, critical, or negative by his grace and mercy. And let's go to the Father now and ask for his help. Father, we do thank you for this day and um, your word, uh, the model, Lord Jesus, that you set for us, but also your truth. And we do ask that with your Holy Spirit, you would remind us of this reality of who you truly are, uh a loving savior, but also a a judge, sinless, holy God of wrath. We love that about you, Lord. And now help us to guard against legalism, a critical spirit, a lack of love towards impatience and forgiveness towards other true believers, uh, a lack of love towards unbelievers, Uh, We need to repent of that. God, we need your supernatural help to deliver us. Deliver us also from false religion, wherever it's crept into our life and in our church. And we commit all these things to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.